At Jiffy Lube, it's our job to keep you moving. With a full range of services from oil changes and tire rotations to filters, wipers, and more, we've got what your car needs, so you're ready for whatever's next. Putting you in the driver's seat of car care, that's a job for Jiffy. Visit JiffyLube.com to find a service center near you. Wise men follow him, Broadcast today in Maine on WXME, 780 AM in Monticello, 1700 AM in Lewiston, 88.1 FM in Westbrook and Orono, 96.5 FM in Brewer, Bangor, Maine. You'll be hearing this on September 12th, Saturday, recorded on September 11th. This is a momentous day in our history. Weather today is uh, areas of fog before noon, otherwise sunny, with a high near 73, northwest wind 6 to 9. Uh, and somehow I, <laughs> I pasted the wrong. My pace didn't take, so that's not the weather. It's going to rain today. It's going to rain hard today. Saturday. Uh, let, let me step back here a second. Here we go. Areas of fog before noon, otherwise sunny on Saturday with a high near 73. Northwest wind 6 to 9. Saturday night, mostly cloudy with a low around 55. Light and variable wind. Sunday, uh, chance of rain after 5 p.m., mostly cloudy with a high near 71. East wind 5 to 10. Chance of precipitation, 30% after 5 p.m. Sunday night, rain likely, mainly after 8 p.m. Cloudy with a low around 57. East wind around 6 miles an hour. Chance of precipitation, 60% Sunday night. New precipitation amounts less than a tenth of an inch. And Monday, chance of showers, mostly cloudy with a high near 70. Light and variable wind, chance of precipitation, 50%. This uh, this rain we're getting is actually a good thing. Uh, forest fire danger is high in northern Maine, or was yesterday, and uh, it's good to knock this down. And it's good for the farmers. It's good for the fruit uh, fruit crops because uh, you know they'll soak up a little moisture, plump up, it'll. It'll enable a little more sugar content in the apples and and uh, berries. Blueberries are about over, but uh, you know all the crops will benefit from from rain. Late hay crop will benefit, and the corn uh, has done really well this summer. I don't know. I haven't heard any reports on the potatoes. The fields look good. And I haven't talked to any potato farmers lately, but. You know, they were optimistic. The leaves are starting to turn up the treetops. They're starting to turn a little bit of a dull red. And uh, it's that time. It's that time of year. The gas price, lowest gas price in the state of Maine this morning is $2.13 in Waterboro. And all reporting stations in Caribou are exactly $2.53, 40, 40 cents higher than Waterboro. And the county tends to run that way. Gas price is two eighty nine in Hollis, and the diesel price is two twenty three in Edgecombe. That's a pretty low price for diesel. Uh, I'm going to be heading down with my diesel today to an apple seed. The high price of diesel is three forty nine Irving in Augusta, same as last week. The source that I have for for getting the uh, fuel prices, I, I check it on an annual basis also, so I, I copied it this morning. But today is, uh, is average price in Maine is 
$2.36, and caribou is $2.53. So they're 16 cents higher than the state average. Uh, but yes, one one year ago, uh, it's, by the way, gas is down a cent from, on average, in Maine, uh, one cent from last week. Excuse me, 10 cents. Gas is down 10 cents from last week in the state of Maine. In the U.S., uh, it's it's $2.36, and it was $2.42. Generally, the price of gas is falling. The price of oil is falling, crude oil. One year ago, gas was $3.51 a gallon nationally. You know, excuse me. Three dollars and fifty-one cents in Maine, three dollars and forty-two cents nationally. So today we're almost exactly the same price as the national average. Last year we were a little higher than the national average. So this is all good. Uh, we're nationally in Maine. We are. Let's see. A dollar fourteen a gallon lower than we were on the state last year. This is a pretty good thing. You know, and people are buying their home heating fuel, and I, I think that's wise. Uh, nobody knows what's going to happen uh, economically. You know, here we are, fourteen years after the famous nine eleven attacks that we which we suffered by the Islamic terrorists. That's who did it. It's not some fluke, some bunch of nuts. Uh, you know, they're all they all want us dead over there. And they was they were hired uh seventeen out of the nineteen uh attackers were Saudis. They were paid by the Saudis, they were trained initially by the Saudis, they went to flight school in this country to learn how to fly airplanes, and they were trained and paid for by the Saudis. The same folks that paid Obama's tuition at Yale Law excuse me, Harvard Law School. You know, the Saudis. And we honor those people for some reason. And they've got oil over there. We've got more oil than the Saudis have. We'll always have more oil than the Saudis have. Because we've got vast proven reserves of oil in our country that aren't being used because we don't need them at the moment. But it's kind of like money in the bank. It's uh, you know <laughs> don't want to make people nervous because money in the bank, bank, as I said last week, is just a lot of zeros and ones on a computer disk. You know they don't when you deposit cash in the bank, it. Uh, you run it through a little counting machine, and it becomes zeros and ones on your account balance. And if the cash is in good shape, they put it in the cash drawer. And if it's not in good shape, they just send it out and they burn it. The bank doesn't burn it. They package it all up and then send it to the Treasury Department, and uh, they burn up old money. And they print new money. They do. But it's authorized by the Federal Reserve. Federal Reserve controls the amount of money in circulation. They can tighten up the supply. When that happens, uh, interest rates go up because people want money and it's kind of scarce. So interest rates will go up like it did when Jimmy Carter was president. Jimmy Carter was president. I was buying a house. I moved on. We left Maine. Went out to work in a different paper mill out in New York State little country town called Lions Falls, population around 900. And a little paper mill with three paper machines, and uh, similar to the mill in Lincoln, actually. You know, it's a little country, old mill, Lana River, a little country town. In case Lincoln, Lincoln is five times as big as Lions Falls. And uh, went out there and worked in a paper mill, Saved up enough money to come back. We hope we never have to leave again. 
that's what people do. Main main people leave and they try to make a better life for their kids and themselves. But the goal is to come back to Maine. And when I say better life, I'm talking financially. You don't have you certainly got a lot less freedom when you leave Maine in many respects. So we went out there and kids went to school. They have strict standards in the schools in New York State. And when you graduate, if you stay in the in the what they call a regents program, uh, New York schools are governed by a board of regents. These people set standards for education, and I'm hoping that they don't that they don't uh, adopt Common Core because it'd be like shooting yourself in the foot. If they have good standards, they ought to stick with the good standards. My son, uh, older son, graduated from there and got a full boat scholarship. He was graduated out of 160 students. He graduated number three in his class. He was in stiff competition to be valedictorian, but he, he was number three. So. My younger son uh, transferred back to Maine, and... Uh, he was entering his junior year. They're two years apart, our two sons. And uh, when he was in his junior, he went and took the PSAT test. He got the highest mathematics score ever recorded in his school here in Maine. But it was because he was in New York State for seven years. So he went from fourth grade to the 11th to the 11th grade, or through the 10th grade, fourth through the 10th out there. We got a really good basic fundamental education out there. Came back and did very well here. Went to the University of Maine, got a degree in engineering, as my older son did. They've made their way in the world. My older son will be 50 this year. It's kind of a sobering thought, in a way. Two sons and I went up on a camping trip up in the west branch of the Penobscot. And we had a, it's 40 bucks a night to sleep in a tent up on the west branch corridor. Things have sure changed. Go up the Golden Road, up to Lobster Landing, and we went into Lobster Lake and camped for three days and had a fine time. Good food, reminiscing, did a little fishing. Didn't catch any togue, caught salmon and a couple of white perch, chub, one thing or another. But that's what you catch that as a result of fishing for salmon and get fish that you don't want. But uh, we met a couple who had gone down the west branch of the Penobscot. They were going to go down all the way down to Ripagina Dam, the ranger station above Ripagina Dam. They paddled down the river 12 miles to Big Island. And Big Island is in the middle of the Penobscot River. The river goes both ways around it. From experience, I know that going down the left side when you come to Big Island is better. They got down there, and they saw the rapids. And the rapids aren't big when the river's up. It's just, just a bunch of riffles going down through there. They stepped. They were in kayaks, and they stepped out of their kayaks, tied them up to the bushes there, and they walked down. They, good grief. The river dropped six or eight feet at Big Island down through that set of rapids, which is normally uh, you just bob down through there in an open canoe with absolutely no problem. And it was a boulder field because there's very little flow in the West Branch. It's been really dry, and that's why the forest fire danger was high. Really pleased to see this rain and knock the forest fire danger down and keep the dust down on the ATV trails and we need it for the crops. Well, it's been a good thing. But those people turned around, and they paddled their kayaks back up the Penobscot 12 miles. That was it. They had left a takeout car down at, down at the ranger station. But uh, they paddled upstream 12 miles. I complimented them. 
Most people don't paddle upstream main rivers. The one guy that did the Allagash paddling upstream just because, as far as he knew, nobody had ever done it. And I know he's the only one that I know of that did it. You know, it can be done. The best way to go upstream in many of our rivers is with a pole. I've got two pick poles, and they're one and three-eighths inches in diameter, made by PV pole and paddle down in Eddington. They don't make paddles anymore, but they PV makes all kinds of logging tools with wooden handles. And then we've got Snow and Neely down in Bangor, who make axes and hatchets and whatnot for loggers. Also, pickaroons. I may be the only guy that ever got his wife a pickaroon for a wedding anniversary. <laughs> but she likes that pickaroon. Those of you that know my wife know that she gets around in a power wheelchair and she brings wood into camp. And she takes wood off the wood pile with a pickaroon. People, you know, not very many people get to see that. But when you see a woman on a wheelchair with a pickaroon, you know, it's. It's a startling experience. So, we, uh, the Dow is still sinking down from its all-time high. And the banks that are too big to fail are, are all nervous. Because when I took off on this track, I was talking about buying a house when Jimmy Carter was president. Jimmy Carter was president. Home mortgages were 18% a year. If you bought a, if you bought a thousand, a $100,000 house, which there weren't many of those around, that's a bit, quite a house, you know, back when he was president. But $100,000 house to round things off, that'd be $18,000 a year in interest, which is pretty, about $1,400 a month interest. People couldn't afford that. So I, I, uh, I bought a house, put put down a down payment, and worked a deal owner financing the house because I couldn't afford bank interest rates, and you know, some people need to sell a house, and they'll sell a house. Back then, it was common for people to to owner finance the house. Well, I was in it, you know, a supervisor in a paper mill. My wife was a teacher. We both had stable incomes. And the owner said, well, okay, we'll do this. And as soon as things straighten out, you know, we'd like to like you to pay off the loan, which I did. But it was a few years. Ronald Reagan had to get in and straighten things out. And Congress, uh, you know, he'd, he'd go lecture Congress and tell them that this is the way things need to be, get back into a where people can afford to, to buy a home and have a family, you know. Well, a lot of young people were living with their parents back then because they couldn't afford to buy a house. And rent, rents were high, you know, because if, if nobody can afford to buy a house, a guy, guy with a rental apartment or a rental home uh, can demand a pretty high price. Rentals were scarce. Lines were tough. Well, guess what? We got another guy in office right now, times are tough. 94 million Americans not working in our country. That's a lot of people. We've got a population of 330 million. And that's almost a third of the people. Now, that's 330 million is men, women, and children. And 94 million is a roughly a third of the adults not working. I got into a discussion with somebody about unemployment and the fact that the number of people working can not possibly pay enough taxes to fund the welfare system as it exists. And you look at disregard, you know, road maintenance and state government and running the prisons and educating your kids. I'm just we're just talking about basic people paying taxes into the federal government 
and local government. But we'll stick to federal here for a minute. And then you got unemployment benefits, and they keep extending them. You know, you get to, you know, you lose your job for whatever reason. The, the sawmill burns down. Okay, nobody's fault. It's just one of those things. Sawmill burns down. Everybody's out of work. The owner and the foreman and the crew that runs the sawmill. I'm talking about a little local sawmill. And uh, they're out. They're out of work. And they will get unemployment insurance. Well, unemployment insurance is something that the employer and the employee pay into. So that if there is a disruption in his ability to work, you know, they'll get unemployment insurance. And it, it used to run for 10 weeks. Then he raised it to 12 weeks. Now they're up to 99 weeks because the economy is in such a slump. Well, 99 weeks is a long time. I'm coming up on two years. If you lose your job, you can draw for two years. If you, they don't, they no longer require that you go out and physically apply for a new job every week because the employers can't deal with the lines. I mean, physically, it's just not possible for employers to deal with this this many people looking for work. That's another indication of our economy. Now, several weeks ago on the show, I remarked about the fact that Obama has announced that he is going to bring in 12,000 refugees from Syria, 12,000 from Iraq, and 12,000 from Somalia. These are new refugees, in addition to the refugees that are already here. So that's a lot of people. And most of them are going to be uh, they're going to be on the dole. That's just the way it is. So you can sum up the uh, the refugee program and and find out what this costs us. And the Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban wrote an article about all of these Africans and Middle Eastern people coming to Europe. And they don't speak Hungarian. They don't speak Greek. They don't speak German. But they all want to be, they all want to come in and be fed. Well, gee, we've got a country on our southern border, and many of the people down there don't speak English, but they want to come in here, and they want us to teach their families to, uh, the kids, you know, the whole family comes, and they want us to provide everything for them. You know, food, clothing, and shelter, medical care, dental care, and rent. You know, they just want to figure it's up to us to provide for them because they like it here. And, you know, Howie Carr used to play a little song, Everything Free in America. I don't sing much on this show, but it's it's funny when he plays it because, you know, most of the automobile accidents in eastern Massachusetts are caused by uh, people with Spanish names. And some of them are Portuguese. I don't know which side of the road they drive in down in Brazil, but those guys can't drive in the U.S., I'll tell you. The speed limit says 70. There's one down there. The speed limit says 65, and they feel it's their duty to go 65 miles an hour, even in the fog and on the snow. I mean, they just go barreling down the road and spin out and smack three or four vehicles, hit the guardrail. And, you know, your insurance and mine pays for this. So 
This Viktor Orban, or Orban is the Prime Minister of Hungary. It's a great article. Uh, you can look it up. Just look up. Uh, just, if you Google Hungary, Hungary Prime Minister Refugees, it'll pop up right near the top of the list. So, uh, Victor, that's B-I-K-T-O-R-O-R-B-A-N. It's a good article. And here this this lady has a a name on Facebook and various other blogs. She's quite a blogger called Publius Hulda. Don't know where she's from, but she pops up on the main blogs from time to time. And uh, she came out with a piece that says, you know, the Islamists don't have a right to build mosques everywhere they want in this country. The First Amendment doesn't apply to mosques. That's her That's her uh, take on the First Amendment, which does say that you know, Congress will make no law prohibiting the free exercise of religion. And we had a discussion about that at a school board meeting recently. We, I taught, I substitute taught in a school up in King excuse me, up in Whittapitlock. And one of the teachers came to me and said, uh, do you go to church? I said, yeah, yes, I do. Okay. And that was it. And, you know, I, I thought that was an unusual question, but I didn't give it a lot of thought. And we went went to lunch. And the teachers went through the line first and all the students, and then they all sat down, and nobody ate. And somebody said, Grace in the public school at lunchtime. Everybody started eating. Not all those kids go to church. But they just, you know, they thank God for their food. And those that probably don't go to church were respectful of those that did. Well, I just thought that was pretty good. That's the reason I mention it for all the world to hear, or at least the Constitutional Radio Network to hear is that that school was closed now. The enrollment declined and declined and declined, and eventually the school closed. All the kids now either come down toward SAD 30, which is the Lee and Lee Academy and surrounding towns, or the kids go over to Danforth, the East Range, East Grand School. That's it. But uh, now I can... Now I can admit or or announce that they used to say grace in that school. That was a good thing. When I went to school, we used to say the Pledge of Allegiance, and somebody would say oh, over the loudspeaker system, they'd say a little short morning prayer. But hope that everything would go well. God bless our country in one thing or another. And it was good, and it was accepted. And, and Madeline Murray O'Hare uh, had not started pitching a fit over religion in our country. She was a famous atheist. Her son used to drag her son around to these various de- demonstrations. Her son is now a Christian. And he accepted Christ, and he's a Christian. And, and uh, he's not an activist. He's just making his way in the world, doing what he does, but he's a Christian. Well, Christians aren't much of a threat to anybody, except for that bunch of nuts out in the Midwest at Westboro Baptist Church. They're, they're not really Christians. They're a bunch of fanatics who disrupt veterans' funerals and things things of that nature. So, on the other hand, uh, we've got Muslim world, which the only the only Nobel Prize winner I mean I know of in the Muslim world were Anwar Sadat in Egypt and Yasser Arafat and Jimmy Carter got the Nobel Peace Prize for 
and they agreed to stop harassing the Israelis for a little while. And, uh, and then, of course, Barack Obama got the Nobel Peace Prize because they thought he might do something in the future. Didn't happen. They just wanted to jump the gun and be the first. So, those are the only two Nobel Peace Prizes that I know of in the Muslim world. Look at the list of Nobel Prize winners in science and medicine and diplomacy and all kinds of things that have been earned by the Israelis. There are lots of them. These are educated thoughtful, industrious people. And they're surrounded by enemies. And they have increasing uh, hostility from Europe, which I don't understand. But they, it's, it's, it's rearing its ugly head in Europe again. And now... Now, we overthrew, as part of the Islamic Spring, we overthrew Muammar Gaddafi in Libya. Now, Muammar Gaddafi was a bad guy. He funded the blowing up of a 747 over Lockerbie, Scotland. And they caught the guy. They put the bomb on the plane, put him in jail in England. And then they, after a while, he claimed he was ailing, so they turned him loose and sent him back to Libya, where he was embraced by Muammar Gaddafi. Much to the dismay of all the Americans that were on that airplane that were killed, and other nationalities also in Lockerbie, and people on the ground were also killed. But they negotiated something with, with our country, and they released the perpetrator. And he went back and he was embraced by the guy that funded it, which was Muammar Gaddafi. So we turned loose a bunch of bad guys, and and they went after Muammar Gaddafi. And he was ultimately killed. He was hiding in a culvert under a road when they finally found him. And he'd come out and he says, what do you want from me? And he says, we want you dead, Muammar. And they killed him with his own pistol. He had a... He had a uh, a gold-plated pistol, and they shot it with a gold-plated pistol. It'd be quite a collector's item. Somebody's got it. They might have it in, in itself on the, in the CIA, or they might have it. Some collector, some Arab in some Middle Eastern country might have it. I don't know where it went. I've seen a picture of it because the guy that shot him had had it in his hand, and he was waving it around after they shot Muammar. So. Right after that happened, there started to be a flow of weapons. Now, Muammar Gaddafi ruled, like all dictators, ruled his country with an iron fist. And there were several tribes of several ethnic groups within the country that all came under control of Muammar Gaddafi. But as soon as he was gone, these tribes started to settle old scores among themselves. They don't get along well. And it's the same thing up in Yugoslavia, on the other side of the bed. Marshal Tito kept Yugoslavia together. There are five different ethnic groups on the peninsula, on the west side of the Iberian Peninsula. Not Iberia. The west side of the peninsula that Greece is on, in Albania, and Serbia, and Bosnia, and a couple of other... Uh, regional groups. Marshal Tito kept that together as Yugoslavia. But when he died, it fell apart, and all these groups started fighting with each other. Well, we seized upon the opportunity in Libya, and we began to ship. I say we. We knew about it. We set it up and let it happen. And we were shipping ammunition, guns, explosives, all kinds of uh, military supplies from Libya to Turkey 
where they were trucking it down into into Syria. And we were arming the Syrian opposition. Well, Obama doesn't like Barack, I mean, uh, Bashir Assad, the dictator in Syria. You know, we've got good dictators and bad dictators. All dictators are bad. But we kind of favor some dictators. And for some reason, Barack Obama didn't like Bashir Assad or his son or any of them. So he put sanctions on them and made life miserable for them. And they were shipping weapons to the loyal opposite, to the opposition, to Assad's regime. Wow. What we didn't know, we Americans didn't know, and our press didn't report, and our military knew it, and our intelligence services knew it, is that the opposition to Bashir Bashir Assad, was actually ISIS. Now, ISIS is the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria, ISIS, Islamic State, Iraq, Syria. Obama doesn't like that term, so he calls it ISIL, Islamic State in Levant. Now, we've got a town named Levant in Maine. Levant, back in the Bible, was all of the land between the Euphrates River and the Mediterranean. That was Levant. That was the big, the old big holy land, which included Babylon. Everything from Babylon to Jerusalem and the Mediterranean. So, look a lot of this stuff up in the uh, a lot of this stuff up in the uh, in the Bible, you know. Babylon, for example, is Iraq. The names of countries change over time. But they talk about the Hanging Gardens of Babylon in history. Well, I was right up just north of the capital of Iraq today. And the leader of Iraq wanted to recreate it. He was starting to rebuild Saddam Hussein. was trying to rebuild the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. and Because uh, you've got plenty of water there. I mean, Iraq, most of Iraq is flat desert. Great place to hold a tank battle. <laughs> and uh, our tanks just roll right up through. I mean, they, the only thing that limited them from rolling further north and, and getting to Baghdad sooner was fuel. What they should have had is a trailer full of fuel with a long tongue on the trailer in case it got shot uh, behind each tank because we just couldn't move fuel fast enough because the the uh, Iraqi forces just collapsed under our armor. They didn't have anything. They had, they had good tanks, fairly good tanks, but there's nothing to compare with the Abrams tank. Abrams tank and fire going 40 miles an hour. They would have to stop, swing a turret around and fire. When they stopped, they died. That was it. There's quite a lot of, of film about that. One of the uh, one of the, the disgraced TV reporters claimed that he was in the middle of one of those battles. He wasn't. He just told about the battle, and he got fired. Very, very seldom that they fire these guys. Dan Rather got fired because he didn't tell the truth. He went on to re- walk around on a lecture circuit and talk about all the stuff that he used to do. This other guy, he's a Canadian. I can't think of his name right now. I don't watch CNN, but he got fired for claiming stuff that he did stuff that he didn't do. Not a good thing. So... These refugees that are flowing into Europe, 
stopped in Greece. Now, a month ago on this show, I reported that you know the Greek the Greek uh, economy is really on the skids. They cannot meet their obligations. Well, we can't meet ours either, but we're pretending we can. Well, Greece ran out of pretense. They couldn't pretend anymore. They simply cannot meet their obligations. So they want the Europeans to loan them more money, the rest of the European Economic Union. So they says, if you don't give us all the money we want, we're going to turn loose all these refugees and send them up to Germany. Well, they made good on that. The Germans and the Dutch and the Belgians and the French and the Swiss and the Austrians and all the countries that are in the European Union said, we're not going to give you that much money because we know you can't pay it back. All this, all right, they sent all these Islamic refugees up the road and up the train toward Germany. They got to Hungary, and this Hungarian prime minister that I just mentioned a little earlier wrote about you know, how they can't deal with it. They can't feed all these people. They don't speak Arabic. Hungarians don't speak Arabic, and the, and the refugees don't speak Hungarian. Hungarian. Hungary has its own language. It's similar to other Germanic languages, but it's different. It's also got sort of like half German, half Slav. It's their own language. And they just... Uh, just haven't been able to to meet the need to feed all these guys. So we've got this refugee resettlement program primer. The Jihad Caucus of 14 Democratic senators want the U.S. to resettle 65,000 Syrians into our country in 2016. And they want private settlement contractors want to bring in 100 to 200,000 Syrians for fiscal 2016. Well, that actually starts next month. Okay, Fiscal year starts on 1st of October. And the FBI says civil war prevents them from vetting Syrian refugees for terrorists. So we're not going to look at them and find out how many of these guys are ISIS fighters. Now, three or four months ago, I first reported on this guy, Ibrahim Muhammad, who was living at 18 Bartlett Street in Lewiston. Five wives, numerous kids, were paying them all, and he had enough money from our payments to commute back to Minneapolis, where he had three wives, and Lewiston, where he had two wives, back and forth. You know, the guy with five wives is pretty busy. And he would also commute to Somalia and send, bring money over there to give it to the, the, uh, the Islamic court there, because that is ISIS branch in Somalia is the Islamic court. So our money, you and I paid in to the state of Maine and to federal taxes, is supporting this Islamic fighter, ISIS fighter. And we have a picture of this guy standing on a hilltop with an AK-47 saying that everybody who fights for Allah will be blessed by Allah. Well, he became a deceased ISIS fighter. He got killed in Syria in battle. Maybe Barack, I mean Bashir Assad, dropped one of his his barrel bombs on him. They fill up a barrel with a bunch of grenades and explosives and junk iron, and they just roll these 55-gallon drums out of the back of a helicopter or a, a, a C-130 or something, and that's their bomb. 
and it, you got a detonator, and that thing hits the ground. It's, it makes a big bang, sets a lot of stuff on fire, shrapnel flies in all directions. It, they call them barrel bombs. So he's a dead ISIS fighter, but they want to bring private settlement contractors are paid by the federal government. Now, we're flying refugees in on charter flights into our country every day, paid for by the Federal Reserve, who is printing this money out of nothing, because we not on the budget. We're flying kids up from Guatemala and Honduras and Ecuador and Mexico. We're flying kids in, you know, six or eight, ten years old into our country Oh my goodness, we got an orphan. We gotta bring in the rest of the family. Well they're doing it now with Somalis and Syrians and Iraqis. Now in my opinion, it's a wonderful thing if we can rescue a Christian family from northern Iraq and bring them here. You know, the Iraqi Orthodox Christians are like Syrian Orthodox or Armenian Orthodox or Greek Orthodox or Syrian Orthodox. They're Christians. And the the uh, the people up in northwestern Iraq speak in addition to various other languages, the smart people. They speak Aramaic. Aramaic is the language that Christ spoke 2,000 years ago. These Christians have been there for 2,000 years. And they speak the same language that Christ spoke, at least in their religious services. The day-to-day in the market, they may not speak Aramaic, but they keep the Aramaic language alive. And they're up there, and they're on a, they were surrounded on a hilltop by ISIS and they have not been overrun. ISIS will make charge in and they'll grab a bunch of people from a village and they'll they'll crucify the children in front of their parents and they torture the husband to death and they take the wife back to Syria as a sex slave and the daughters. That's what they do. That's what these people do and they want to bring these people into our country. They want to fly him in and turn him loose. Meanwhile, you got a bunch of clowns in Congress that don't know what to do. You got Boehner, who doesn't like conservatives and will not let conservative bills be advanced in the House. And you got McConnell in the Senate, who backs Obama every time it's important. And we've got some good people down there. I think Bruce Pollock was doing a good job. And there are a bunch of people down there doing good jobs. But good grief. you got Shelly Pingree, you know. She doesn't want to have to divulge some of her financial transactions, so she's getting a divorce from Donald Sussman. Donald Sussman funded the fight to establish the compact two decades ago. He was a billionaire from Connecticut. He decided to register to vote at his summer home in Maine. So he doesn't vote in Connecticut anymore, but that's where he really lives. Frustrating. We've got Lewiston, Maine. In Lewiston, Maine, 10 to 15 percent of the people in Lewiston are Somali now. The public school English as a second language budget increased 4,000% from the year 2000. In Portland, there are 36 different languages spoken in the schools. There are 45 languages spoken in Maine public schools. 45 different languages. Local communities get no federal or state money to support refugee populations. It doesn't go to the community. Minnesota's Somali population is up to 36,000. And there are heavy 
ISIS involvement in Minnesota, like this guy who had lived on Barlow Street, Ibrahim Muhammad. Getting so I remember the name, don't have to look it up. There's some things you just wish you didn't know. disappointed that such a thing exists and you learn something and you can't unlearn it. It's just like you can't unring a bell. I've got a bell at camp. came from Vietnam. It's got dragons carved in the side of it. And every now and then I just give it a one ring. Clang! Gladdens the cockles of my pee picking heart. My wife rings it when she wants me to come in from fishing or if I've got a phone call I need to return I'm out in the lake fishing. She'll ring the bell and I'll come in and I'll go back to work. I take my vacations in 15 and 20 minute segments. Bishop. But the refugee populations are replacing American workers. It used to be you go to a, go to a motel in Portland. My son lives down there and it's convenient for us to stay in a motel sometimes. We go down and visit. And you go in there and, you know, 15, 20 years ago, they were all Americans. Now, the manager is an American most of the time, not always. And all of the all of the uh, housekeeping personnel are Somalis in all of the motels that I see down there. We don't stay in the in the Holiday Inn, overlook at the bay. It's a it's a high-priced place. We don't stay there. We just regard the motel as a place to sleep. Yeah, we we stay in a clean, economical hotel, motel when we're down there. But all of the housekeeping staff are Somalis, and they'll nod to you and smile, say hello. That's their job. That's what they're told to do. But their money that they earn much of it goes to Somalia, to the Islamic courts. And the head of the Islamic courts lectured the Portland City Council and told them that they had to have only only Somali drivers at the airport. Only Somalis. Well, 14 years ago today, Mohammed Atta and his buddies took off from the Portland airport, flew down to Boston, changed planes, and flew two planes into the World Trade Center. One of them right about now. Well, actually, one of them around 9 o'clock, the other one around 10 o'clock. So, as I'm recording this, it is September 11th. And the people who paid for it have never paid any penalty or suffered any type of economic sanction. And I'm talking about the Saudis. 17 out of the 19 were Saudis. Mohammed Atta and his buddies stayed at a motel in Portland on the night of the 10th. And they went to a strip joint down there. I don't know which one. There's a couple, three of them down there. You see the ads when you go to Portland. You look at the Portland Press Herald, they got ads in there. Referred to it as Pravda in Portland. And then they got up in the morning and they took a shower and they shaved themselves all over. That's supposed to be pleasing to Allah. And then they took off and they flew into the World Trade Center. They flew in above the 68th floor because up to the 68th floor, they had asbestos insulation on all of the vertical support columns. Not all of the horizontal beams, but all the vertical support columns had asbestos covering on them. And they were encased with other materials, but they had a heat shield there. Because they knew if there was a serious fire, that steel will, when steel is heated, it will bend. And if it bends with all that weight above it, it will collapse. The engineers that designed it knew that. But at the 68th floor, they got a court order that says, no, no more asbestos. Asbestos is bad. So they stopped using asbestos, so they went to some kind of fiberglass. 
And they published this as a good news. This is a wonderful thing. You're not going to use asbestos in the rest of the World Trade Center. And it was in the National Geographic magazine. And the terrorists read about it. I said, hmm, well, if we ever fly a plane in there, we better go above the 68th floor. The plane, you know, the World Trade Center, it's not hard to count the stories. They know how high it is. The 68th floor is about 70% of the way up, so they want to land up near the top someplace. Not at the very top, but you've got to have a lot of weight above the place where the beams heat up, soften, and melt if the building's going to collapse. So both planes that flew into the buildings were uh, were above the 68th floor at almost the same level at different times. Of course, when the first one was on fire, the second one knew the you know, where to fly in there. They might have been surprised that the first one hadn't collapsed yet, but... but uh, Osama bin Laden wasn't surprised. Osama bin Laden was an engineer, smart guy. He educated uh, in in Europe. And, oh, by the way, Osama bin Laden's family was flown out of the U.S. on September 11th. They gathered them together, took them to Boston, and they flew them to Saudi, back to Saudi Arabia. George Bush arranged that. Bush administration, set them all out. But they, get, they were here to watch the fun, and then they flew them home. You can't make this stuff up. Let's see. i got three minutes to go. So they want to bring in all these third-world people, many of whom are terrorists, into our country. Now, the percentage on welfare in our country, getting welfare benefits today, is 2.9%. There's very all kinds of other other uh, assistance. But we've got 2.9% of our population getting cash assistance. The refugees, 37.8%. So 30, 38% as compared with 3% of Americans. Food stamps, 13% of Americans are on food stamps. 61% are on food stamps of refugees. SSI, Social Security, disability essentially, 2.6% U.S. citizens, 15% you know, refugees. Medicaid, 16% of our population gets Medicaid. This is government health insurance that we don't that everybody pays for. 48% of the refugees are on Medicaid. And TANF, temporary assistance to needy families, is four lies in, in one term, is 1.4% of the U.S population is on TANF, 17.8% of the refugees are on TANF, temporary, should mean temporary, assistance means assistance, needy means, you know, people, the better term would be wanty, (laughs) and families, these are apparent with kids. If there's both parents are living there, if they're married, you know, they usually don't get it. But if it's girlfriend and boyfriend, they can get it. This is just part of our marriage penalty. So it's kind of a wide ranging show today, but you know the thundering herd of third world terrorists is headed our way. And I'll just close with that thought. We're going to head out to an apple seed down in North Berwick, Maine. And if you want to go down to North Berwick, uh, show up there at 8.30 tomorrow morning at the Fish and Game Club. 
and we've got an apple seed. And people that go love it. We ask them to bring back a friend next time. We want to grow apple seed. We want to get more instructors. Click back here. I'm going to run over about a minute, but I guess that's all right. This has been the Northern Maine Landman Show on the Constitutional Radio Network, the Conscience of Maine. Broadcast today in Maine on WXME, 780 AM in Monticello, 1700 AM in Lewiston, 88.1 FM in Westbrook and Orono, 96.5 FM in Brewer, Bangor, Maine. Get out, enjoy the weekend, be safe, God bless. See you next week. Wise men follow him, they rose again. Wise men follow him, thank God for the renegades and the lives they lead. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.